0: Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, all, and welcome back to Medicus. Today's guest is a very special woman and the sister of a dear friend of mine. Amanda Upton is a young mom with two incredible girls who have something in common, a complex condition that does not yet have a label. I'm thrilled to have her on our show to talk about their journey and shed some light about how we can become better providers for families like hers. So welcome, Amanda. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I am a mom of two kids who are still considered to be undiagnosed. Um, although that far from means that there isn't anything happening. I was a teacher. I have a degree in regular and special ed, birth to age eight. And so for years, I taught 4K and then a daycare. At this point in my life, I'm a stay at home mom who gets to take care of kids and manage therapies and talk to doctors
0: (laughs) are kind of my big roles these days which is more than a full time job. So can you kind of walk us through your journey to becoming a mom of these two wonderful girls?
1: Yeah, so my pregnancy with Jillian was pretty typical, except I vomited and was sick a lot. Um, I lost 20 pounds on the first trimester. But otherwise, everything seemed to be fine. And things just kind of Went along like typical. She was born a C-section 24 hours after my water had broken. Things were smooth. The first day in the hospital, she struggled with eating. Within 24 hours, they were elevating her bed at the hospital. But they kept saying, well, maybe she just swallowed a lot of amniotic fluid. Mm -hmm. But within a week, she wasn't gaining weight properly. And so we started trying all the tricks. You know, we were breastfeeding and then adding bottles on top of it to try to add weight that way. We were seeing lactation consultants all the time and going for weight constantly. But by the time she was three months old, she still was not gaining weight well and was projectile vomiting constantly. And it was becoming very difficult to feed her because she was just too lethargic. She wasn't keeping enough in. So then she wasn't waking up to eat the next feed. And it hit a point where Our house was lined with beach towels because she vomited everywhere all the time so frequently that her claws no longer did the trick. And so we just have beach towels everywhere. And I remember one morning calling our pediatrician and I was like, I was up all night with this baby who vomited all night. Like, I was teaching 4K, but I worked in a daycare. And so Mm -hmm. um, I saw babies all day long and I was like, there is not a single other child that I see in this building that is vomiting to her degree. And at that point, they sent her to the emergency room. She was hospitalized for several days. They ran tons and tons of tests looking for all sorts of things, came to the end of it as they were kind of like, well, maybe it's a GI bug. Maybe it's something more follow up with GI and let's see um, how things go. But a month later, he was hospitalized again with a uh, respiratory illness. However, at that point, she was so tiny they couldn't send her home with her lack of weight gain. You know, we had tried every day. The nurses were feeding her, I was feeding her. There just wasn't weight gain. And she was placed at that point, we were told that they were thinking just for two weeks. But I remember the floor doctor telling me that, and I remember the GI doctor walking in and laughing. He goes, "I've got a feeling things might be otherwise." Within a month, she was switched to an NJ tube. Because even with G feeds, she still just wasn't keeping enough of it down, and she was still vomiting. So it's kind of been a journey from that point. That's kind of our our starting point. But then as she got older, we kind of realized that all of her skills were delayed. You know, she wasn't talking and she wasn't walking. On her game. And then we did realize as soon as she started to gain skills, she would move less. So she began the ability to walk and then suddenly was stationary, which doesn't line up with child development at all. No, definitely not. So I began on the hunts working with PT, trying to figure out what would cause that. You know, a kid's not just going to learn a new skill and then not use it. That's not how child development works. It ended up a, a PT stuck a pulse box on her and realized that her... She was dropping into the 80s Anything she moved. So she would move, she would deset. she would sit down to recuperate, and we were just kind of in this vicious cycle. So at that point is when oxygen was added. The kids have gone through a lot of medical testing. Um, we have a lot of medical testing that sits kind of in that range of something's not quite right, but mm-hmm. not definitive enough to be able to say, here's what it is. Jillian's other big thing is when she was four, she started having these events where she suddenly just woke up one night thinking for air, went completely unconscious in my arms. Couldn't get her to respond, rushed her to the ER, where they then transferred her to a larger hospital. And she spent a week there and we had to reteach her how to sit, how to talk, how to walk, kind of everything from base level. At that point, they couldn't tell us what had caused this event, if it would happen again. A couple month later, we discovered that these were recurring events. We've since found that IV fluid given weekly through a port prevents the events from happening. But we went through several years where we lived constantly with an emergency bag ready to go at any time. Um, so that's kind of our story. Also have a second daughter who we discovered pretty early. We all said we were going to give her her shot. You know, they told us when we were pregnant, since we didn't know what the genetic disorder that our oldest daughter has, they kind of gave us the odds of a 50-50 chance. They wouldn't give her her shot. We're going to let her show us what she can do. And, you know, we're not going to judge her based on her sister. But at three weeks old, she was the so far under her birth weight, and she was not trending in the direction of coming back after her birth weight. Everyone realized we were on the same journey.
0: Wow, what an incredible amount of challenges your daughters have already went through. You know, thinking about it, and I don't know how you interpret it, but having Lydia have the same condition as Jillian is, obviously it's heartbreaking, but it's almost a little bit of a blessing knowing that, you know, you weren't crazy because I know like some of the providers that, as we've talked over the years, have questions, again, like what you were saying in the beginning, like maybe it's just a GI bug. And I think it's really important as we talk about these things to really understand that parents know their kids best. I would hope that most doctors take home that message because like you knew what was going on exactly. And um, I think we really have to trust that the parents have, you know, the best intentions for their children and trust their judgments.
1: Yeah, we want the best for them. And we like, as a parent, you don't search out looking for hard things. Our goal is always to look at different things and see how we can best support them. But yeah, there have been times along the journey where you question yourself and doctors question different things. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every parent I've met along the journey. And at this point, I know a lot of parents of kids that are pretty medically complex and Mm -hmm. Everyone that I know just wants the best for their kids. And sometimes we each display that differently, but at the heart, that's the motivator behind their
0: actions. So just for our listeners, you are an avid blogger and you really helped, I think, a lot of families by documenting your journey. But one of the things that you shared not too long ago was kind of putting a hold on testing and really kind of giving them an opportunity to just be girls. So I guess what has been the most challenging aspect of living without a diagnosis?
1: Yeah, so we did put a hold on testing that ended up actually coming right before everything kind of fell apart in the beginning of 2020. So that actually kind of (sighs) worked out timeline wise. But we had gone through at that point, seven years of pretty, Invasive, continual testing. Mm -hmm. When you don't have a diagnosis, everybody wants to know why, including Mm -hmm. us. I mean, there were so many times where I can think of the times where I just sat in doctors' offices and I thought, "I need you to tell me and explain to me why this is happening." Mm -hmm. So I, I don't understand why we're seeing this symptom, or you know, I don't understand why this specific thing isn't getting better. And so for a long time, we were pretty willing and open to say yes, any test that a doctor could tell us might be able to help us get an answer or help the girls with a symptom. And we just hit the point seven years in where that became our entire lives revolved around medical testing and tons of doctors. And some of these tests are very invasive. Sometimes they're really painful. And we were just realizing the psychological cost on all of us that it was hitting a point where we were starting to feel like the amount of testing was beginning to outweigh the benefits. We hadn't really seen a lot of great testing. We, we still don't have a diagnosis. And so it was hitting the point of, we just wanted our kids to be able to be kids. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they're still in multiple weekly therapies, and they're You know, we still are with our team, but it just means that we view testing differently and we're, at this point, you need to come to me with a really good reason why you think that testing is going to provide some answer or something, and you have to sell me on it. Um, it's not that we don't want a diagnosis, but we've also been given pretty clearly from our doctors that at this point, even if we were to get a diagnosis, the likelihood of it changing anything in our day-to-day life is pretty slim, because whatever it would be is going to be something in rare. Right. Um And so the reality is is it likely wouldn't come with us knowing how to do or treat anything any differently, which has then adjusted how we view things. But there are challenges without having a diagnosis. I mean, one of them is I would joke for years we'd show up in the ER with something big happening and you'd look at my daughter's chart and the big overarching diagnosis was reflex. But when you look at a kid with, you know, a GGA tube and oxygen, you're like, something does not add up here. Like, reflux does not cause all of this. And so sometimes you are in those emergency situations. And, you know, we try to mainly go to the hospital where we receive the majority of our care at, but there's times in an emergency where that's just not an option. And so we need to go to smaller local hospitals and not having something to be able to say they have you know, X, Y, Z disorder, and somebody being able to picture in their head, what that disorder would look like, or how you would treat that, or even to give them something to go Google search back at their desk before they walk back in the room. Sometimes it's a challenging thing. Another portion of it is just is funding and insurance for different things that they need. But it comes back to that insurance piece. Sometimes and there are things that are automatic qualifiers for insurance, but you know, we don't have any of those automatic qualifiers. And so that puts a lot of the burden on our end to prove the need, which I I understand, but it just does create more of a need for proof on, on our side, which sometimes means extra paperwork and extra things along those lines.
0: Yeah, definitely. I could imagine even if you were to carry her entire life chart into an emergency situation and give it to the emergency room doctor, It would take them days to try and piece anything together. So really, I mean, I feel like when you show up at an ER, it's more like, I know my daughter needs this, give her this. (laughs) Because, yeah, like you said, there is no gestalt that people can put to what your daughters have. And so when they see something like they're just, again, a new physician, a new nurse, you know, they're just going to throw the kitchen sink at it. And someone who has been through the ringer for seven years, you already know what's worked and what hasn't. And it's really challenging, because I think typically, you know, we're taught in medicine that yes, obviously, listen to the parents, but it's not like the parents tell you how to treat the child. It's more like, okay, think about it. You're the one with all the training and all you know, all the memorizing of all the diseases and everything. But I feel like this is such a case for let's just let parents guide us because they know best again, because there's just no way as a oncoming doctor to the case that you could figure this out in an emergency situation.
1: No, And I think some of the times, like I never want to do a doctor's job for them or make them feel inferior in the situation. But there's also times where I'm like, this is an emergency, and I'm just going to give you the massive cliff notes version of this. But here's here's what we need to kind of happen based on here's my data. But I can't I, I can't give you all 500 pieces of, of that data at the, at the moment. You know, if you want to go look at these specific dates in the chart, they can help you. But it's a lot of a lot of date memorization in my head. Of you know, these are the times that might really help you if you go look at at those. Things, but kind of the most frustrating times for me is when we do meet a new provider and they act like they're going to be able to solve the entire situation in 10 seconds because I've had a lot of people really oversell us over the years and that really gets our hopes up on different things. And then when that doesn't pan out, it feels frustrating. And I don't blame the doctor in that that situation. Our one doctor says to us frequently, Science has not caught up to your children yet. And that is, you know, when I ask him questions, he very frequently (laughs) uses that (laughs) line with me. But he's right. Like, there are just parts where science hasn't caught up with our kids. And we do know so many amazing things through science, but there's also just still a lot we don't know. And so it's holding the tension of those two things and being willing to say there's some things we just don't know yet at this point and so we're just going to have to take the best educated that we can
0: definitely so one thing that you mentioned previously is insurance and the hassle of it so can you share a couple experiences maybe that have been extra aggravating
1: yeah we had one recently so my daughter has a port she gets these fluids weekly I got a letter from the insurance company not that long ago um, that we just needed a research for Steph, um, but that for whatever reason, her port or fluids had been had used a diagnostic code of swallowing difficulties, which doesn't totally go with why. She has a port. I mean, she does have swallowing difficulties. That is a diagnosis, but it doesn't go in. So um, the insurance company was questioning it. So I get this letter that says they have approved all of the things for her port. The needles, the heparin, everything. But they did not approve the saline bag. So they're they willing to send me the needles at poker, but nothing even went through <laughs> the needle. I'm like, this is just cruel and unusual punishment. Are we just poking the kids like this? That's horrible. I need you to send the bag too. This to be no good. But I think our our most classic story is. My oldest daughter uses a wheelchair when she's out of the house. Um, she struggles with walking for long distances. And it was a real challenge to get that through insurance. It was another one of those things when you don't have a diagnosis. That was kind of, a, I think it was nine months of back and forth with insurance companies. We finally get the letter that everything's golden. We're good to go. Except this one line item says it's not covered in a call. Um the DME and I was like, "Hey, you know, what is this one one thing?" And they go, "Oh, they did not approve the handles for you to what the wheelchair? <laughs> she was four at the time." And I was just like, "What are you talking about?" They're like, "Yeah, they decided if she needed this wheelchair for independence. You having handles on it makes it a no longer an independence device." And I was like, "But she's." four and there's times where she's gonna get tired or i need to push her you know across the busy parking lot or something along those lines um we ended up working it out and her wheelchair has candles but that was just one of the like they approved everything else but not the handles to be put out yeah i'm just gonna
0: throw it out there that that is basically saying that a four year old should be driving what's equivalent of a car to a four-year-old
1: <laughs> i don't think that's right the case. well and her wheelchair is about the price
0: for a car, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, yes. yeah. I honestly, you amaze me anytime I, you know, chat with you about the way that you deal with insurances and coordinating all your care and everything. It, it really is truly a full time job. And being a caretaker definitely takes its toll, I imagine. And, I think one thing I wanted to ask you was how, and I know we chatted a little bit before the interview, but what has life been like for you and your family during this pandemic? Um, How have things changed? Yeah. So
1: um, I'm of to back this story up a little bit when Jillian was two. She was getting sick all the time. Um, I was teaching and she, you know, bugs go around daycare all the time. Kids get sick, but she was just, Catching everything, and it was hitting her harder. And a couple of our doctors mentioned to us and asked if we would be willing to consider homeschooling her. Just because they were concerned how hard the viruses were hitting her it was just going to be a long-term problem. So at the end of that school year, I stopped teaching, and we started homeschooling. Um, fast forward to now in a pandemic, and that means that we were vigilant and thoughtful about those kind of talked to our team pretty early on and said you know what guidelines are you thinking what what do you want and so for the most part for about a year we have not had much interaction at all physically with the outside world just to, to try to keep our kids safe when they're already on oxygen and already we already know like the last time Jillian got a GI bug that lasted for everybody else for 24 hours. She was in the hospital for days, which means we do a lot of Zoom play dates. My kids have gotten really good at playing with their friends over Zoom. We've done a ton of out-school classes, which is kind of an online thing where you can sign up for a class. And my kids did, you know, take educational classes on there, but then they also take Fun classes that did one on Friday, which was a Barbie show in town. Oh, so all the kids got to talk about their Barbies for, you know, 45 minutes. So we try to still do a lot of really good social interaction, just not physically. And so it's been a year of adapting and making things look different. Because previously we were doing things like zoo classes and museums and things along right. those lines. We just go at last high risk times. We try to avoid, you know, when those places were going to be full. But we still like to be out in the community and do things. And so, you know, we had recently where we realized our kids had outgrown most of their tennis shoes because they'd been outside playing in, in the snow. But they hadn't worn tennis shoes to go much of anywhere in so long that I hadn't even realized that they had outgrown them.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, at least they have each other to have that physical contact with another child. I also want to mention that I know that your girls cannot be vaccinated. Even if the FDA had approved this new COVID vaccine for children, I know that's currently being tested. Your girls have very severe reactions. So I would just like to throw it out there that this is why we need people who are healthy to get vaccinated to protect your girls. because. You know, COVID is deadly for many people, but your girls are exceptionally.
1: Yeah. Our one doctor said early on, he's like, we know this hits old people and medically complex people, especially hard. He was like, your kids aren't old, but they're very medically complex and that, you know, doesn't hold the odds in their favor. Yeah. Our kids are the only kids that our pediatrician has ever stopped vaccinating. We had done several vaccinations and every time, especially with Jillian, Lydia, we've only tried one. but. She came and me one day and she said, we we can keep vaccinating this child. She is getting way too sick. So for us, you know, we tried and it's a conversation that we've had back and forth with different specialists over the years. But kind of this is where we're at at the moment. So for us, it is more of an approach of being away from people physically as much as possible. But we are very excited for the vaccine for the outside world. And um, my husband already has gotten his first dose. So
0: yeah especially because your entire family uh, your you know your parents as well you guys are disney people you love going to disney world those are your christmas and birthday presents as opposed to more material things that you do experiences so yeah i definitely hope that people who can continue to take this vaccine and your girls can experience the outside world again
1: yeah we're we're waiting on a make-a-wish trip, and I have a kiddo who's asked to go to give kids the world, so I, I need COVID numbers to turn around to make that a
0: reality. <laughs> Definitely. So can you uh, mention some special adaptations that you've had to make to give your girls the best life possible?
1: Yeah, so we try to be really intentional. I actually sent a message the other day because all this is growing out of her bed. She has a specialized bed, so she sleeps um, at a 30-degree angle, and just said, hey, she's growing out of the one that she has. I know a lot of people at this point would then go to a hospital bed. But is there any option that we can have a, thir- a bed at a 30 degree angle that does not look like that does not turn her bedroom into looking like a hospital room? And so we try to make medical equipment as child friendly as possible. Their, their feeding pumps are in backpacks bath that look like animals you know, the wheelchair is pink and purple. The DME asked me repeatedly, are you sure you want it pink and purple? And I said, you can have whatever color she wants. She's the one who uses it, not me. We try to make our house as accessible as possible. And just thinking through accessibility and also having those accessibility conversations with places that pre-pandemic that we frequented and trying kind of lead those conversations of how can we make spaces the most inclusive for everybody and sometimes some of those things are just things with somebody who's never spent much time with somebody who uses a mobility device just wouldn't have thought of and so sometimes it's bringing up those conversations yeah my daughter will very easily as soon as we're you know out someplace if there's not a curb cut her first thing will be oh sorry we have no curb <laughs> cut here <laughs> you know those little things that you don't necessarily notice before but you know that determines where she can get on a sidewalk So trying to look at those things and and plan for the future, but also plan for a future where I don't have a crystal ball of what things will look like and how things will progress. And so trying to be intentional with things that we do modify and stuff so that they'll last for a period of time. So we're making good investments on money that is spent.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. One of my favorite adaptations that you shared on your social media was and i don't remember when this was maybe a year or two ago but you know as you mentioned the girls can't eat solid food and i remember you sharing pictures where you went to an ice cream parlor and while you guys were able to have ice cream the girls had play toy ice cream that they could play pretend eat which i think is just so neat to make sure that your girls are experiencing all that life has to offer that they don't feel like they're missing out on anything and i think you do such a great job of that And so to segue, obviously, this must take a huge toll on you to try and do everything and be super mom. And you are, as I mentioned, an avid blogger. So how have you found writing to be helpful in dealing with your day-to-day struggles?
1: When I started blogging, my main goal and purpose of it was we were was right around our second hospital stay. And I was getting texts from friends and family who wanted to know what was going on. Very sweet, very kind. But I hit a point where I was like, I just couldn't keep up. And so I had a teacher blog and I just decided I would kind of an update up there. So I could just direct people that way. And then I kind of morphed over the years and became an outlet for me. Um, It's become like a giant journal where I have. I can look back. There was something recently where I needed to remember a date of something, and at this point, it's many years And There's I try to remember all the dates, but there's plenty that I don't at this point. And so I was able to just go back and look. But then there's also been times where it's hard. There's also times where I'm not necessarily going to call somebody up and just start advocating in their direction, but writing this way. So that people are able to think about experiences that they wouldn't have necessarily thought about. You know, back to the curb cuts. If you've never thought about that or had an experience with that. Sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. So I started to try to use my blog as a way to show people those different aspects of what our life looks like. So that as they're in different situations they're able to advocate as well because they've had the experience of reading and learning from us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that reading your blog, I definitely learned a lot and I think it will certainly impact the type of physician that I will be in the very many years to come. So another thing that I wanted to discuss was just how your girls, them being undiagnosed, has impacted your marriage.
1: I married my high school Sweetheart and my best friend's. And I'm so thankful that I have him alongside me in this journey. But, you know, there's parts of it, I can't, you know, I can't just call up a random babysitter and say, hey, we want to go out for dinner on Friday night. Here's the oxygen, the feeding tube, and oh, she's connected to the port. I hope you feel good with dosing Copperin. Like, you know, that's just, that's just not going to work.
0: And back in the day, it would be like, oh, yeah. And there's that emergency bag in case of emergency that you have to like rush to the ER.
1: Yeah. So that does mean that we, you know, have to be more creative with having time to ourselves. And in a lot of our conversations, the reality does end up revolving around the day-to-day, what things look like, how the kids are doing. And so there have been times where we've had to pause and try to be really intentional to not let that become all that our marriage is about. But there's times where it's hard and there's times where there are days that are really stressful. And when everybody, when both of us are stressed in the midst of a situation that's stressful for the whole family. But when you're feeling stressed, that can be hard to remember. So I think with any marriage, it's a constant learning how to communicate. But this just has its own strengths and twists to it.
0: Wow. Well, you guys are doing incredibly well. So I hope that you continue to find time for yourself. And hopefully when this pandemic is over, perhaps your sweet parents can take the grandchildren who they love dearly, and you can have a little uh, getaway. Speaking of you and Brent, how do you guys split up caretaker responsibilities? I know that you mentioned you're a stay at home mom, and I know Brent works. But I was wondering whether you have set schedules or kind of what goes on with caretaking?
1: Things have shifted and changed as the years have gone on. And part of that is just what our individual skills are really good at. And part of it is just based around times. So like I take care of all morning medications. He takes care of all medications before bedtime. I am in charge of ordering all supplies for things or for, you know, we have multiple medical supplies that need to be ordered and things every month. He takes care of making the kids' uh, formula for their feeding tubes. So it's just kind of we've each found those things that we're good at for a lot of the day-to-day communicating with the therapists and communicating with doctors and going to the majority of doctor appointments. Those things fall on me, but we try to also just have open communication of what occurred at a hospital stay or the, what happened. And so that he always knows and is always a part of those decisions, even if he may not be in a room, we can't physically come and take for every appointment that there is in every therapy. But I try really hard to make sure that he's included in all of the decision-making process. So even if the physicians are only seeing me, it's a team decision that we've made.
0: I think that's so important, especially when it comes to children. I was actually just listening to I think another podcast or maybe reading something, but yeah, they were just kind of mentioning about how sometimes it's so difficult when parents disagree on a decision. Right. And so I think it's really important, obviously, like for your marriage that you guys go in on the same page, what you want for your kids, how to advocate. So that's awesome.
1: And there's times where we, where we will have a difference of opinion and we try to sit down and kind of work that out and come to uniform Choice before we can try to come to our medical team, just because we feel like that best respects our providers
0: in the midst of things. And I think it, you know, makes you look at like, as you are a cohesive parental unit, which is really important. One other thing I was curious about this is hard for mothers of all daughters, but you make an extra effort to make sure that your girls consider themselves. Different or special, but not in a way that there's like something wrong with them. And so, how do you go about developing this self acceptance and positivity with children who are so young? So,
1: we tried starting to be really intentional with that from a really young age that everybody has their differences. And while some are more different or more apparent externally than others, that everybody. Does have differences, but we also try to talk about how differences at their core, the majority of the time, aren't inherently bad or good. They're just different. How we then interpret them as a society and how we go about acting upon them and how we treat other people that's where good and bad can start to come into the conversation. But we also try to give our kids, in ways that are developmentally appropriate for them, Some freedom to be able to say what works or what doesn't for them. And so like part of the ice cream example that you used when they were really, when Jillian was really little, we weren't sure if she was going to want play food or not since she doesn't eat orally. And so we let her make that decision. And so she decided one day we were at the store and she really wanted some play food. And so we left that open to her. And so we were more than happy to support her in buying those for her, but it's kind of letting them lead in some of those things. And it takes guiding from parents. They're still young kids, Um, but leaving some of those things open to see what they decide to do. Instead of me trying to have a preconceived notion and forcing it, it in there that, oh, you know, they don't eat orally, so they must not want play food, or every kid in the world has play food, therefore we must buy it for our children. And so sometimes that does cause some friction with people who don't necessarily hold those same views, where sometimes they're like, well, but every kid does this. And I'm like, well, we're letting our kid decide if that's what they want. But we found that for them, then when they're making that choice, they have ownership in it, and they feel positive about it. One of the other things that I'm very intentional about having been a 4K teacher is I have a massive library of books. And kind of at this point, the rule for me to be buying a new book to come into our house is it has to feature somewhere in it a character of diversity in some way. But especially my kids find it. They love looking for the person with a disability inside of a book because then they see themselves on the page, they're represented in the text. And that is huge to them. So I'm really intentional about making sure that they see themselves represented in the media that they watch, in the books that we read, and we have conversations along those lines. There's a couple of TV shows that they really like. There was one that handled disability and accessibility incredibly well. There's an episode of Death of that we absolutely love because it talks about accessibility. But there was another TV show once where we were watching it, and they're not talking about people with disabilities kindly. And so then we sit down and have those conversations. So part of it is just having an open door through those conversations and being conscious about what they're seeing and what they're viewing.
0: Yeah, I think that is absolutely incredible advice for any parent, right? Because like you said, all kids are different in some way, shape or form. And so it's really important, yeah, to encourage them to take ownership and have positivity and have these conversations, really, because you build a positive environment. But I think when you see A show like what you just mentioned, where they're not speaking kindly about kids with disabilities, somewhere down the line, there's going to be in real life where someone's not speaking kindly. And I think it's important to kind of have those discussions prior to that happen so that you don't, you know, destroy their being.
1: Yeah, well, and just giving them the permission to be able to say like, hey, that didn't feel good when you said that. I mean, we had once where we were in a store and somebody looked at Jillian and you know, she has oxygen on, so you can see that there's a disability there. And they looked at her and said, what's wrong with your face? And she was like, three. And my instinct was like, you know, the, the fires of a mother are ready to erupt at you. And she just looked at them and she goes, N-thing? like, why would you ask me such a question? But just to have her to feel empowered enough to be able to look at the person and be like, nothing, you know, but she initially she did look at me a little bit and like, what is wrong with my face? And I was like, what's wrong with your face? You know, But for her to hear that and for her to then be able to say and advocate that on her own, she's going to need that growing up. And so just giving them those tools to be able to state those things for themselves. Because I'm not going to be there in every situation to advocate for them. So I I want them to feel empowered to advocate for themselves.
0: That's fantastic. Wow. I mean, your journey is just incredible. Your whole family is so dear to my heart. But honestly, you're just good people who are tackling challenges as best as they can.
1: We try to talk about things like people will talk about her feeding tube. And her answer is, it's just my way of eating. And it's just a matter of fact for her. It's just my way of eating. And so it's not some big drawn out thing for her. That's just how she sees it. It's just a different way to eat.
0: And I feel like that leaves an impact on whoever was making the comment too. When it's coming from a child who's like, for example, the face thing or the eating thing, it's like nothing. This is how I do it it makes them hopefully reflect on like, why did I just say that there really is nothing wrong with her face. And this is fine to eat this way, you know, so um, yeah, hopefully it leaves an impact and helps them reconsider their stances. So in closing, I know that you and your family are really active in donating and raising funds for the Ronald McDonald House and the Children's Hospital in Wisconsin. Can you talk about what giving back to these organizations means to you and how others who are interested can help contribute?
1: I've always just been one of those people who want to be giving back to different places, whether they impact me or not. But these are, along this journey, we just realized that there are some places who are giving to families who are in similar shoes to us or us specifically, And giving back and being thankful for those things is a really big priority to us. And teaching our kids that and teaching our kids service and that disabilities doesn't mean that you don't also still give back to the community or that you don't have anything to give back to the community. They still have tons to give to the community. And so teaching them that and empowering them in that has been something that we've really focused on. And also just rallying our community. There's times where I'm going to see a need just because I'm in the midst of a situation and we'll be interacting with an organization and we see a problem arise or a funding issue. And I'm just thankful that I'm able to then highlight it and hopefully get help for whatever that organization is needing. And so personally, I just find it to be an honor to be able to serve and give back.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for contributing and helping other families like yourself. So, do you have any words of encouragement for other families who are in your position?
1: I think sometimes it can feel really lonely. I was reading an article earlier today, you know, people with rare diseases are often called zebras. And the the article was something along the line of what do you do when you feel like a zebra amongst the zebras? which just really resonated with me. You know, what do you do when there is no foundation? There's no other group to call. What do you do then? So find people who can relate and find support that are able to walk the journey with you. I mean, there's many times where I lost track a long time ago of how many plans that I have had to cancel in on emergency. All of a sudden, like, oh, sorry, we can't do that tonight. But finding people that can be in your life that can understand that that might be the case. And just know that you have it in you, even when you feel like you don't. And even when the days are tiring and long, that you, at the end of the day, want the best for your kids. And so find help, but also feel that strength inside of you.
0: Awesome. And now on the flip side, what do you wish you could tell every physician, medical student, or healthcare provider?
1: Yeah, so I have two big things that have become what I'm kind of known for in our circle of friends is the things that I really advocate for and talk a lot about. One of them is how we as a society view quality of life for disabled people. Way too often we see... Medical interventions, and we automatically assume that that person's quality of life is less because of said medical intervention. And my view isn't to say that medical interventions are easy or that they should be in place for everyone. There's been medical in- interventions along the lines for my kids that I've said, hey, this isn't doing anything. It's not helping. Like, we need, we need to get rid of it. But there's other medical interventions where Just like Jillian's port, she went from constantly in and out of the hospital. We're constantly having to reteach this child how to walk and how to talk. And since adding this medical intervention, she has had zero hospital stays for an entire year, which is not something that had been happening in her life at all. And so when you think about a port, you think, oh, quality of life has just gone down. The reality is she's now receiving the treatment that she needs. In our house, while she watches, I Carly curled up with her stuffed animals and her blankets. And during the end part of her infusion, she zooms with one of her best friends. You know, I I can't view that as a negative quality of life. Now I see how my child has gotten her freedom. She's not spending so much time in the hospital. We spend five hours once every other week. It's five hours, and the weeks in between, it's one hour doing this, and then she's off and on her way. But if we just view you know medical interventions as subtracting from quality of life, then we struggle to see the balance of the times where maybe they could improve quality of life. And that's not everything, but it's just changing that mindset of what quality of life looks like. My children today have a great quality of life. They played outside, they did therapies, they played together. And so it's painful as a parent when they're just assumed to have a less quality of life. And I've had that pretty blatantly stated to me from physicians before, or just people will have low expectations of them. And that feels really hard. My other thing is be cognizant of how you're sticking families between medical providers. Your coordination is something that has always been a bit frustrating for me because it lands on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the ability to get a three-way call going. So I've got a situation right now where Dr. A is telling us that we need to do one thing. Dr. B is telling us we need to do something completely different. Cannot do both of the same things at the same time. Like they literally, it, it will not physically work. And I have not been able so far to get Dr. A and B to come up with a cohesive plan where that I can then execute it. So then I I end up feeling like I'm the go-between between everybody. And this nurse who has just tried as well as I am to get answers. And so then I feel like I'm being a pest. I'm constantly like, hey, I, I really need y'all to talk. I really need an answer here. And we're several months into this situation. And there's still no resolution. And then it gets to be very exhausting on the parents, you know, I had to write another message of like, hey, I'm, I'm feeling frustrated here. And I don't, I don't want that. There is no part of me ever that wants to argue with a physician, because I want the best for my kids. And I fully believe that us working together as a team is what's best for my children. But when I end up in a position where I'm between two physicians and I feel like I need to choose and that I'm going to alienate one in my choice, the weight of that becomes incredibly overwhelming. So my suggestion would just be if you're in situations like that, I can't make everybody talk, but there's often a lot of times where a provider can pick up a phone and make everybody talk in the situation. Be willing when you're seeing that those situations are are going to happen because they are. Providers are going to have differences of opinions on things. There's a lot of things in our treatment that aren't necessarily set in stone. There's no, you know, there's no treatment path or guidebook here. And so we all are just having to make our best choices based on the science we have. And there's going there's going to be times where people disagree, but also don't hold that against the family. When two different people come to us with options and we have to choose one of them, it's not because right now I like or dislike one of the doctors better. You know, there's going to be pieces, you know, one has been with us significantly longer, that same one has sat with us in the midst of emergencies and we just have a different relationship and so there are pieces of that because of history that are going to go into the decision but not places I dislike the other doctor and so just keeping that in mind because I feel like in this situation right now I'm hurting feelings and that's not what I want to be doing and it's not a place to be as a family. No one should make you feel that way. Yeah so if physicians can talk you know, include me in this conversation or have a conversation behind the scenes. But if we can have some unified fronts sometimes it takes that weight off of the family from having to make those decisions or just give us more information to be able to make the best decision based on what your thought process is. Yeah,
0: definitely. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for sharing your story and insights and you know, this was an incredible conversation and I cannot wait to share it with the medical community. Yeah, thank you for being such an inspiration. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.